This is Van Luck, the Ghost, and we are live on our Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch channels with Project P from Boston. Hi, really glad, glad to be here. Glad to have you on the show. We did have you on our audio-only Anchor FM podcast, which we still do. But what happens is it gets converted from the from the video. Um, so this will still go on to Spotify and Apple as an audio only. But now if the world gets to see you and they get to hear your music and see your work. Uh, and so, you know, visual stuff is kind of the, the main type of media today. So that's why we've kind of gone into this version of the show. Great. Looking forward to it. So we've got one of your videos, uh, a song called Stratosphere that we're, we've got queued up. And we're gonna probably we, what we're gonna do is we're gonna show people your work, which we weren't able to do before. So you'll go on mute, um, and then we'll we'll talk about it on the back end of showing the video. All right, sounds good. So we can ready to play it. So hold on, put you on mute, and then here it goes. Uh, Stratosphere. We're gonna play the full video. Thank you. 
So that was Stratosphere from Project P, and we're back on the show again. So I was wanting to know, is like in the video, are you actually in the video at all, fencing, or is, that, or is this all actors? Or did you actually have a cameo in it? <laughs> no, yeah, I did not show up in the video. Um, they were all like royalty-free clips, oh, cool. um, video clips that I just put together. To, yeah, I like I like the feel. So you you're you're responsible for the the music and the visuals. You, you it's all that's all Project P part of what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty cool. Well, that's what I like to do myself <laughs> with expansive sound. <laughs> um, like everything we do is the same thing. But um, yeah, I think it's it's really cool. I think when you're a singer songwriter or producer or creative person and you have uh, like the total control of your the overall feel of your project so is that is that kind of why you like to do what you do you you have a vision and you want to be able to take it from the music to to the video yeah definitely i think it also um i feel like i the way like my schedule is right now i mean i would love to like film the videos myself but uh filming is just really time consuming and, you know, I've been editing videos here and there for a couple of years. So I figured, you know, I'll just put them together myself. Um, I know that my audience would really love me to like create an animation. They've actually mm -hmm. suggested it already, but to hire an animator, um, it's kind of a expensive, yeah. um, also time consuming, but that's definitely something that I will look into uh, when the time comes, when I have the budget. Um, so yeah, for now, yeah. I feel like these work, this works for now. Yeah, I think that's it's a cool. I've always kind of walked the line with that because my daughter happens to be a sequential graphic artist, so she's actually created a lot of ghost visuals for me. Um, so then I didn't have to pay an animator, <laughs> but <laughs> she's created like the logo and some of the symbols and representations of Josephine Electric and stuff like that. But yeah, it's difficult if you don't have somebody in the family to do that for you. Then yeah, it's, it's kind of pricey. <laughs> yes, yeah, definitely. <laughs> to, to do that, so. You know, it's good when you have friends or family that can do that. But it's cool also when you can you know, use all the tools that are at our disposal as artists today to be able to create the visuals that you just did, which are really, really cool. And it has a, a cool feel and uniquely your choices on how what you did and how you put it together. So it's still your your overall concept. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, and I the videos themselves, like so I kind of put a filter over it a purple filter mm -hmm. to kind of make it feel mine because purple is a it's kind of the That's color okay. of my brand <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it's i feel like it's it makes them more recognizable too because i mm -hmm. know like a lot of other artists might be you know they might use the same uh, clips 
So yeah. when I put a filter over them, it kind of makes it more my own. Yeah, I'm into that purple vibe too. I'm a, well, I was, I was a big Prince fan, so like everybody knows mm -hmm. that. But <laughs> purple is like my backlight in all my videos for the ghost. So he tends to be the backlight I have. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I think it's just interesting. Um, we talked before about how you put your songs together. We kind of dive deep into uh, synthesis. I'm a big subtractive synthesis, like hardware guy. You know, though I understand a lot of people say they're in a DAW. They're in their soft sense. They have a lot of cool stuff they can do with MIDI keyboards. Uh, mm -hmm. I think we've talked real deep before about like what what direction you go with with it, like when you put together synthesis. Because I think today, I think the added benefit is if you have that laptop and you have all these soft sense, you have access to like everything. And then like if you're in my kind of scenario, I've kind of put limitations on myself with my hardware. Because I'm kind of a hardware synth guy, but I, I like having my modes and my Rollins, and I kind of deal with the constraints that they give me. But that in itself can be kind of cool if you think about that. But uh, <laughs> so, are you still using soft sense in like a, a DAWs for most I of your work? Yep, yep. So I'm still Team Ableton. It's a, it's a good place to be. I mean, I, back in the day, I couldn't even imagine I've done that. I mean, I was kind of grew up having to get this, the hardware because I'm a keyboardist and it's kind of like, okay, well, I got to have a Hammond or I got to have a Roland because that's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> but kind of like a guitar player's got to have a guitar. But um, today, that's not necessarily true. Yeah, definitely. Although I do want to get some, some hardware eventually. I'm actually looking at a couple of, of things, so... Yeah, I think today what's really cool is we've kind of got the best of all worlds. Because I, I think when I was growing up, the Moog had just gone out of business. Profit had just gone out of business. Uh, Yamaha had taken over the world with the DX7. This is back in the 80s, uh, again into the 90s. And, uh, you know, a lot of new wave bands had Moogs. They had profits and stuff. But a lot of these companies were going on the way out. And they were like older versions of these since. The cool thing today is like almost everything that was gone is back. I mean, all the modes you can pretty much get them again, brand new. They're old Profit 5s you can get brand new. You can get Roland representations of Jupiter 8s. You can get, you know, Oberheims. You can get all the classic sense that created like the new wave movement, which I was kind of like growing up in. You can pretty much get those sounds in hardware and in software. So it's it's kind of cool that we're living in an age where you can make that choice to either have it on your laptop or have it physically. Yeah, yeah, it's very versatile, it seems, because, uh, well, I've never used analog equipment before, but I'm sure there's like a, a kind of a learning curve, I would say. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the thing about analog, which is, is, is the rabbit hole, uh, when you get into analog uh, circuitry, it's kind of like like a living, breathing thing. And there's there's something about it that if you're in the digital world that you probably won't like is like it's very hard to sometimes get to back get back to what you might have been playing with the day before, um, sure. <laughs> because the thing about analog is it's kind of like point in time. It's kind of like if you have a guitar, you have an effect pedal, you have so certain things like with a physical instrument, it can be kind of point in time and it might not exactly sound like that again. Um, with physical instruments, you can get that kind of situation. With a lot with the, a lot of digital instruments, you can replicate things all the time exactly the same way. 
it, that you can save it and you can have it. Think about analog, it gives you limitations. It actually makes it so it's harder in some ways to replicate what you've done before. You have to be very, very good at documenting what you've done and then making sure those things are, are reset. You take photographs, you have to take pictures of where your things are to kind of bring them back to where they were because there's no, there's no preset, there's no saving. Um, and mm -hmm. so that, that kind of makes some people like very, oh, I don't know about that because I, like, I don't want to have to spend an hour trying to get back to where I was. <laughs> but, um, but for me, it's just the feel of these analog sense is kind of like the, what, what I like about them is they kind of feel like a partner in crime when you're making the music. I feel like my Moogs are like members of the band because mm -hmm. they behave in such a way that they feel like they're actually doing things you didn't expect and you can kind of play off of them. And, and that's kind of cool if you're just playing as a one-person band, when you have all this analog gear, they have a kind of nature that makes them kind of in, like individuals uh, that can perform in different ways and you can kind of play with them like you had a group of like living instruments or other in musicians with you. And that's kind of why I like them because I'm kind of a one-person band and having machines that can do that kind of gives me a lot of, a lot of feel in terms of what I like to do. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely cool. I'm not sure. Have you ever used like I think they're are they called modular modulars, yeah. like mod boards? Yeah, I have those honestly of, like confuse me. Like I, I have yeah. no idea how it works. It's just like all wires. <laughs> if you see behind me, mm -hmm. there's a big modular rig. Yeah, that's like, the thing against the wall, right? Yeah, there's a big yeah. thing against the wall. It's got like tons of wires. That those are two modes. Well, actually three different modes kind of stacked together. And mm -hmm. what's cool about the modular world, then if you ever get into it, and the reason why modular synthesis, we like it, is mm -hmm. that you get to customize your instrument. When you build a modular instrument, you can mix and match modules from different companies, from that from the same company, from all these different sources. So you could have something from Moog, some from Roland, some from Yamaha, something from Oberheim, some from sequential circuits, whatever, make noise. There's so many different companies. And then what happens is you got an oscillator from here, you got an LFO from there, you got a sequencer from somewhere else, you got you know envelopes and all kinds of like uh, filters. And because you can mix and match, you make a very unique sound. It's kind of like when people take a guitar and they put different pickups in it or they change the, the, the nature of the guitar, they customize it. Um, you know, drummers can customize their drum sets. These type of synths are very customizable. And so they make it so that you can make a very unique sound that's like all your own. Uh, and I think that's why some of us synthesis, we like these machines because it kind of gets the human factor back and I can make a choice and that not everybody really knows what my secret sauce is, you know, cause you don't know how you build those things and you don't, maybe you don't share it. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you have something that's kind of point in time, very unique, it'll make you sound like you. Um, not that you can't do that on the soft sense world, but like you can get to the same place, but it's, I think it's not as fun as if you actually physically have a piece of hardware that you can touch the knobs and the sliders and all the stuff. It seems like you're more likely to do that if you have a physical representation of that rather than a virtual. Yeah, definitely. And I'm definitely a hands-on learner. So I feel like I would enjoy kind of playing around with that for a few hours. <laughs> Yeah, because what happens is that you can build your sound from the ground up. I mean, we I spend as the ghost 
probably like, you know, if I practice four hours a day, I might spend two and a half just building a sound mm -hmm. rather than actually building the tune. I actually will go and take the waveforms and build a tone. Yeah, it, it can take so much time. Like I use um, Serum. Yeah, you can to do make the same sense. Thing. And yeah. yeah, I can spend hours in, in Serum just tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's just physically you have a mode with dials or you have like one of these sense and it's got dials and knobs. And then it's what's the coolest thing about analog is the cables that you see that look like a telephone wire thing. Basically mm -hmm. allows you to override the workflow of the synth. So you can take the synth the way it was built and change it. And so you can change the workflow the way it works. You can change where something's gonna happen. You can totally change the position of where, how the sound is being created. And I think that's why the big, big thing that we like about it is, is, is the fact that you can take like these cables that allow you to stack cables. You can have multiple things going into the same input or multiple things going out of the same input or multipliers that go and change things. So you have two signals going into one thing, another signal going, same signal going again, split three, four times. Um, when you do stuff like that, you get all kinds of weird things to happen. I mean, a lot of what we like to do is like, sequencing from LFOs or envelopes. So if you actually have a sequence that's actually kicked off by a LFO or a sequence that's kicked off because you're using uh, a random voltage generator and then that random voltage generator is triggering an oscillator in a different weird way every time it comes in so, somewhat different. And that's where you get this kind of randomness that feels like there's a real person there because there's weird things happening that you can trigger things to happen like a couple seconds and it's going to do this. And then the next time it's going to do that and it's going to go and do this and it's do that and it keeps on doing all these different things. And it can, it can kind of make you or break you if you, you get you lost in it. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it's the type of music you're into. I can see you getting into it. I can, I can hear like what you're doing with serum and I can, I can see like this stuff you can do that when you, I think it, what happens is I, I don't think it's it's this or that. I think you can take something like Serum and then you can add a Moog into it or you can add a modular into it or you could add like, uh, you know, a wavetable set where you could take, you know, a mini Moog baseline or, you know, a, a really good sampler. Uh, I think you can take like any kind of form and kind of merge. My, my whole thing is I think you should take different genres and just slap them together however you want. <laughs> yep, I, I totally agree. So would you consider modular as like kind of an intermediate? Like, is it kind of difficult to get into? Would you say I that? think the thing is that people are scared of them if you don't own it. <laughs> like mm. you see a modular synth and it's not yours. You're like, can I touch that? And I think <laughs> yeah. once, once, once you own it, like once you have it, the whole point is then you can just do whatever you want and they're kind of made to break rules. Mm -hmm. So, so you kind of take it and say, okay, here's what subtractive synthesis is supposed to be, or, or this is what additive synthesis is supposed to be. Like there's like two different types of synthesis. There's like the Moog subtractive synthesis, which is what everybody knows from like a Moog or a Prophet or a Roland. And then you have the additive synthesis which was created by this guy called Bukla back in the seventies, late seventies, well, early seventies. He came up with this additive synthesis concept that in the modular world is like two different ways to go at it. Either go from a Buchla perspective, which is additive synthesis, 
which deals with fractals and all kinds of weird concepts. But it's not, that one's kind of weird. It's very experimental. It does a lot of weird bell tones, a lot of wood kind of tones, a lot of um, sine wave based things uh, that have a lot of harmonics and you play with the harmonics to build all kinds of weird tones that are not typical. Like where a Moog, everybody knows the Moog kind of bass line or the Moog lead lines or profit pads, which are kind of lush or Jupiter eight pads, which are very lush. So um, additive synthesis on modulars is super experimental. If you get into the Buchla side of, 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 of modulars, it's very much out there. You're dealing with like stuff you would put into soundtracks, you know, weird, weird, really weird, strange noises, pink, white, red, brown noises and all kinds of weird fractal type of stuff. So it's kind of like, I wouldn't start with like Buchla or additive synthesis. I would probably start with traditional, um, you know, subtractive or Moog profit, um, you know, Roland based subtractive synthesis, which you you'll immediately know because that's what a lot of these things like serve are doing is like subtractive type of synthesis. Um, but it's just, I think what's cool about it is, is then you just own it. And like you, you own your preset. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. It's also cool. Definitely want to explore that in probably the next few months. I think it's all good. I mean, I think what's cool is there's a lot of sense out there that are now like not crazy. You know, they're they're the crazy iconic sense that cost like thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. You can spend like eight thousand dollars on a moog. Well, you can actually spend like sixty thousand dollars on a moog. You can go crazy. You know, have studio level moogs that are in like big studios, mm -hmm. um, and then you can get ones that are like you know under a thousand dollars or two hundred dollars. There's like kits. There's like a kit version. You can build it, do it yourself. They just give you the parts and you put it together like 200 bucks. Yeah, oh, that's pretty cool, but, actually. So, so I mean, there's all this, and you can't, it's like the way Jack White kind of talked about it. Jack White from the White Stripes, he used to use like a $200 plastic Sears guitar. And he, what he wanted to prove to people, and he used it on White Stripe albums, that I didn't need like a $5,000 Keith Richards guitar to, to, to do the blues. I can take this thing that's like really a piece of garbage and just because if you're a good player, you can take a Casio, you could take like a low hundred dollar keyboard from, from a Toys R Us and do something. It kind of really depends on if you're a musician, what you, how you go at it, in my opinion. Like if you, if you, you musicians, it's really the ideas you have in your head and how you get them in, onto the paper or onto the board or the instrument. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to have the best instrument in the world. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And, you know, I really like and appreciate artists who can make so much with so little. Like I love like seeing the kind of the journey and the process of how a producer like first started with just like, maybe they just started with a laptop. Maybe yeah. they didn't even have like a controller or anything. And yeah, you can, you can do a lot with limited materials, so. Yeah, I think the limitations of music is the big thing. I mean, one thing that I was taught from my music teachers was you kind of can deal, limitations will force you to come up with things that if you, you know, if you have the best instrument in the world, the best acoustics or the best whatever, then you kind of like, you can get lazy. But if you have limitations, it forces you to do, innovate mm -hmm. or come up with ways to get that sound to be, in a, you know, more present in a different way. And I think that's why I I think it's good to like put like 
limitations on the like what you use as an instrument, how you view it. I think a lot of things today. The one thing I would I, I'm kind of critical of some modern music is is the is the kind of thing where people make it too perfect or too clean. I'm kind of a big um, proponent of of um, happy accidents and maybe lower fi recording because I think that can get to the heart of something a little bit better. Even if something if something's recorded perfectly, okay, that's great. But like if you think about great music and you go back in the past. I mean, some of the great classic albums aren't recorded in the best high fidelity, you know, have actually errors in them, have things where there are actually tape errors. If you listen there, you can hear that there was a splice and it didn't get cut exactly right. Or there's a, a low timing error, or there's a, a note that's a little off key or vocal that's a little off. But some of those things actually make the song better than if it was actually fully perfect. Um, and so, I think that's what some people need to understand is sometimes like the second take is better than the 10th take. Yeah, I, no, I totally agree. I totally agree with that. Um, I feel like some of the best like melodies that I've written were kind of just by accident. I wasn't thinking too hard about them versus, you know, when I'm making like a, a new track, I'm like, all right, let's see if I can make a melody as good as this. And I, I think about it too hard. And so it doesn't come out, you know, as, organically. So definitely, you know, mistakes, you know, quote unquote mistakes can make for good records for sure. Yeah, I think I had, I had a, um, like another mentor said, you know, what happens with music is the further you get from the original take, the less honest you become. Mm. Because what happens as an artist, you might've revealed something that's personal. And then you go back and you say, well, maybe I shouldn't have said that. And so every time you chew the next take, you go further and further away from the honesty of the first one. And it tends yeah. to be in music. If you've checked, I, I saw a documentary um, um, with um, uh, like, oh, there's some really, really good artists and now it's escaping my, but, um, oh yeah, Back to Black. So you know who I'm talking about. Um, and and the thing thing with her work was the, the closer to the first take, the more honest it was. And they ended up using the second and third takes most of the time because it just was just so much more powerful and really what with the heart of the record. And, and a lot of times that happens if you go back and you check with like really classic records from Aretha Franklin or Marvin Gaye or Stevie Wonder. It's like, you know, John, I saw it's like, yeah, it's the second, third take of the ones we, we end up using. Even if we technically got better on the 10th take, it was like the second and the third one that actually had more honesty and more power. And even if they had air, you know, mistakes in it, we say, like, okay, fine, we'll just live with it. Yeah, yeah, totally agreed. And that kind of makes me feel better because I feel like I have some perfectionist tendencies. And so, you know, one thing I've learned as a producer is that um, when, when you're mixing a song, mm -hmm. there's kind of, you're kind of, uh, a race against time because the longer you spend on a song the the more likely it is that you'll never finish well so. yeah i think the more likely it is you, like, you destroy what you should should kind of leave alone mm, yep <laughs> i, I have been you, there <laughs> yeah i think there's a classic example like with prince right when doves cry actually has a baseline and warner brothers wanted him to put the baseline in and he's like 
No, and there was this thing with Prince. A lot of times, his songs, Warner's would say, "Hey, these sound like demos. They don't sound like they're done, right?" So all these professional producers would go up to, come up to Prince and say, "Hey, this is really great, but it doesn't sound like it's done. You need to go back in and put more tracks on." And he was like, "No, it's done." And I think that's the brilliant thing about Prince is he stood his ground when he was seventeen, when he was like eighteen, when he was very young a producer. He stood his ground. And there were people like he, he, there was, I think Maurice White from Earth, Wind and Fire was going to work with him. And he said, no. He said, you know, at 17 years old, say, I know what I'm doing more than Maurice. And actually it was a fact. It was true because he did. Because because if Maurice White had done those records, it would sound like Earth, and Wind and Fire records. They wouldn't sound like Prince records. Mm-hmm. And we got Prince because Prince stood there and said, I know what I want. And I'm not gonna let somebody change what my vision is. Yep. Yeah, that's really that's, powerful. <laughs> I think that's real important to anybody who come in that runs into producers, because the thing about producers is they have a tendency to replicate themselves upon another artist. And if you mm-hmm. don't stand up, they will overwrite their style on you. Yep, yep. Agreed. And, yeah, and if that you could want that because you want what it brings. Or you could be like Prince and say, I know his first records didn't really kick, but you know, when he finally hit like Dirty Mind in 1999, his dedication to crafting his own unique style finally paid dividends because it didn't sound like anybody else. Yeah. And that I think uniqueness that, is important. Yeah. So, I mean, the problem today, I think, is a lot of people would like go to the same 10 producers, 20 producers, and have things sound in the same space. And you're like, okay, well, I've heard this before. And I guess that's what music is supposed to be. But where's the where's the thing that makes this different? You know, you don't want that getting edited out. <laughs> that's my right, whole thing. Right, true. Mm-hmm. Is like, I like to hear, that's why he's kind of living in this indie space. Uh, where I talk to people in the indie world. I mean, I could, I once in a while I talk to somebody that's a, a little higher tier. Um, but a lot of times I like to live in this kind of underground um, because this is where I think the real art is happening. Now they say, well, not the, well, what the, the big art's not real. It's like, no, not that it's not real. But it's like, I think there's a lot of cool stuff on SoundCloud. There's a lot of cool stuff on um, Beatport. There's, you know, YouTube, all these like underground things. And I think that's where, you know, the new artists that don't get the the platform, I think they need to have one because that's where things, that's how we get the next big artist, you know, is it comes out of usually the underground and word of mouth and people, you know, young people find the, the, you know, the next Elvis, the next Prince, the next Elton John, next Beyonce, that's, they they find because they dig somebody, you know, that's doing something a little different. Yeah, yeah, totally agreed. Um, I've actually had, you know, some people in my audience say, oh, well, for Stratosphere in particular, um, they said, oh, that sound is just so you. And I'm just trying to, I guess I'm still That's trying good. to figure out, like, yeah, what, what yeah I'm trying you? to figure out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you is evolving, I think, as an artist, right? Like, when you start as an artist, you've got a vision and you necessarily grow, right? And yes. so yeah. as you as you get better at your instrument, as you get better at production, as you get better at crafting songs, you're going to necessarily evolve. 
And the problem sometimes I have with some fans is like when you start, right, they can be stuck on you know, like version 1.0 of you. Yep. And then as soon as you go to version two, they're like, well, I'm not, that's not hitting it for me. Right. But, but that's where you are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's true. And, and that's always, I think that's the artistic dilemma. It's like, okay, here's what the fans like. Here's what the business likes. But here's where the artist is. Right. And artists sometimes will go and do something. It seems like it's sabotaging their career because they go and do something that's really wildly different than what they did before. But it's kind of like all part of the process. You know, and I think every artist has to go through their kind of, oh, you know, you know, are they going to do, you know, a Sgt. Pepper? Are they going to do like a white album? Are they going to do like a yellow summary? You watch the track of the Beatles, you know, they had this massive success. And then they would do sometimes these weird experiments. It was like, what is that? Uh, and, and then eventually the world said, well, that's brilliant. But when it first hit, it's like, okay, that's not help. You know, that's not love me do. That's like, what is this weird psychedelic stuff on Sgt. Pepper? You know, and everybody today thinks, oh, that's great. But back then, there's some people looked at, what is this? You know, and so when you go to do that, like when your fans are like, what is this? That it probably is a good step that you're making, but you know, might not feel that way initially. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, I think it's good to be somewhat unique and... I think when it comes to like making new sounds and exploring different things, I think it's necessary to experiment. And so, you know, it's unfortunate that sometimes fans can, you know, get stuck on one type of sound that you did. But I think in order to make something like truly extraordinary, that's, you know, out of this world or, you know, really unique, then it's necessary to experiment with it and sometimes those experiments don't come out sounding that great. Like I've made over 200 beats now and mm -hmm. definitely my first beats weren't that good. But even, yeah, just sometimes not every beat is gonna be released and that's okay. I needed yeah. to experiment with it in order to eventually create something that can be released and that my audience is excited about. Yeah, I think it's like the whole thing about like, uh, you know, your rehearsal time or your demo time as an artist. You know, some some artists like to have their demos in the public square and everybody sees them evolve. And then some artists are more like, well, I don't want you seeing all this. I want you to see it once it's like perfect. Right. So there's there's I think there's a little bit in every artist where it was like, OK, there's the raw stuff you do to try to get to where you want to be. And then there's like, okay, here's my big statement. Here's my purple rain, you know, here's my songs in the key of life. You know, here's my, you know, great album, you know, like here's my <laughs> free bird <laughs> or stay away to heaven. You know, I mean, there's like these iconic things, you know, all along the watchtower from Hendrix. I mean, these, these iconic things, okay. Was Hendrix trying to always write all along the watchtower? Or was that just something he just happened to come up with? You know, he just happened to, oh, I'll take a Dylan song and rewrite it. And, and, and you know, you know, it, it, and it's like, it, it was a weird, a weird thing that he did. You know, he took this Dylan song and kind of reimagined re it. If, if everybody, anybody ever heard the original Dylan version of that song, it doesn't sound anything like the way Dylan, the way Hendrix did it. Hendrix like interpreted it a totally different way. And I think that's a real cool thing 
that's a really cool example of a cover because in my opinion it's really cool when somebody covers something and it makes it their own and they like reinterprets it and doesn't just try to spit it out the same way like a xerox you know i think that that to me is brilliant when you can do that then you actually can own the song <laughs> even if you didn't write it or you co-wrote it you just like you, re, you just rewrote it you know mm-hmm. Wrote in is, your style, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's, that's, that's so, so as singer-songwriters, a lot of times we want to own our own song and, and do our own thing, and I'm a big proponent of that. But sometimes it's like, sometimes it's a necessary collaboration can kind of kickstart where your career is. You know, if you work with somebody, you find some lyricist or you find another musician, and somehow that connection creates something better than what you could do by yourself. Uh, at some points, I think every artist finds that kind of collaborative thing. Have you, I know you've got your own brand, but have you thought about working like in a collective or being part of another project or are you actually doing that? Yeah, I've definitely um, thought about collaborating with other artists, um, particularly vocalists and rappers. Um, I'm starting to kind of have all these different ideas and I've actually you know, thought of some lyrics, you know, cool. things that could work for that. So it'd really be really cool to work with a vocalist or rapper. So would you write the lyrics and then have the delivery from from your, uh, you know, the rapper or, or the vocalist? Is, could you have a vision or would you kind of cross collaborate? Um, I think it could be either or. I've definitely um, started writing some lyrics for something and I probably could figure out a melody too. And so all I would need was the voice. That's awesome. Yeah, but I think I'm definitely that- open to um, to the other one as well. Like having someone come up with their own, because you know, I, I could come up with my own, but they could come up with something completely different that you know may or may yeah. not work uh, better for the project. So I'm definitely open to that as well. Well, it's like it's like back in the day before I was just a ghost. I used to be in a lot of bands, and. Um, I was kind of like, you know, like the way I am today, kind of like would write everything, right? And so every, everybody come to the thing, I have the drum parts, I have the bass parts of kind of like a producer and a band. But, but what happened is like, okay, my drum parts are coming off of a synthesizer. So a real drummer is gonna take what my idea is and make it better. And I would like, let it go. You kind of like, okay, I'll let, I know a drummer is gonna play that better than me, right? And then in my bass part, a real bass player, a bad guy who knows bass, can take my Moog bass and play it pay, pay, pay better than me. He can take my idea, but he's going to flourish it, add different licks and, and make it work. So I think what happens, like when you collect, at least when I was in a band, as I, I, I kind of knew that everybody had like a certain capability and they were going to take whatever I had as a demo and make it better. And most of the time you kind of just let, you would just let go and say, okay, that actually does sound better than my original idea. Or like, well, maybe just keep a little bit of what I had and I do like what you had. And so it's kind of like a give and take. Or sometimes there were situations where it's like, okay, that is actually way better than what I did. And I was like, oh, need to rewrite the whole thing, you know, in terms of a certain part. And I think what's cool like, when you collaborate is like, you don't know where that line is going to be. It's kind of real dependent on the vibe or the connection you have between the other artists. Yeah, for sure. I think um, in the last podcast interview you did for me, we talked a little bit about Team Impala. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, awesome. So <clears throat> that kind of reminds you, you know, Kevin Parker, he writes all of the parts of his music, 
but then he has his band that you know plays all the separate parts but i think it's brilliant that he's able to you know be a, a true producer in that he he writes all of those instruments himself and composes it from beginning to end on his own i think that's incredible yeah if you think about it, a guy like pete townsend he from the who he pretty much used to do that um, I don't know if anybody realizes like, almost all the Who songs have demos from Pete Townsend where he did like everything. He did the drums, he did the bass, he did the vocals, and he would present it to the Who. And then every member of the Who had was such an individual, they would kind of reinterpret it. But the original demos are like 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 90% of what the song is, is mm -hmm. the original demo. Is it? But it's like what Keith Moon or Roger Daltrey or Entwistle would bring to it would turn it into a Who song rather than a Pete Townsend song. Um, and I think that that kind of thing is really interesting. And the same thing happened with Prince. I mean, Prince is a one-man band. Almost every song he ever did, he pretty much did by himself. And as soon as he had the MPG or the Revolution or the Love Sexy, Sign of Times band, they would all reinterpret it. And so the live versions of, like, Sign of the Times live doesn't sound like Sign of the Times, the album. Because it's a full band with Sheila E playing the drums instead of just a drum machine. And so they end up having a, that feel what Sheila could do. Live is totally different what what Prince did. And it's almost like two different things. They're beautiful in their own way. I like listening to the just Prince playing everything. But then I enjoy actually watching the videos of the full band with Sheila playing the drums and you know the other people on the other instruments because they interpreted it differently. And it, it still sounds, it is Prince, but it's like, okay, this is the Prince band. And and how they present it is is, is, is a totally different thing. And I think that's really cool in music when you can do that. Yeah, it becomes like a totally different experience. Um, it's, it's really interesting actually how, you know, two two different people can play an instrument in totally different ways. And so it creates this unique experience. And definitely when it comes to live music, you know, totally different from listening to the studio recorded version, right? So yeah, yeah it's it's very cool. Is this interesting today? Because today a lot of people can actually make their um their performance to sound exactly like the studio. <laughs> mm. And I think and sometimes and sometimes um I'm kind of a person that I like to make my songs sound different than the studio. I kind of like, if I play my stuff live, I'm necessarily gonna, I have kind of like the live version that I do, right? Versus the studio version that I do. And 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 sometimes like you get fans, oh, I wanna hear it exactly like it was on record. I'm like, well, if you ever see me live, you're not, it's not gonna be that way. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, some some folks want it to be that way, and some folks don't. I mean, there's some people who used to see like the Grateful Dead, and their big thing was that when they played, it was these big jam sessions or like Parliament Funkadelic. Like when they played, it was just a big jam. Or James Brown, you know, it's just a big jam session. Um, and, I, and I think some people they know that that those type of bands, that's what they do. Um, but it seems like you don't get like that those type of bands as much anymore, like the Allman Brothers and. And 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 in the dead, maybe you have I think examples where you get like Foo Fighters or Pearl Jam that still do it that way, um, or Radiohead or Wilco bands like that still kind of do it that way. But then there's a lot of like modern pop bands that kind of like running off 
the backing tracks. <laughs> yep, <laughs> true. So have you, um, I know before we, we talked, had you gone live? I can't remember if you've done live performances or you were still just mostly bedroom producer. Yep, still mainly a bed, uh, bedroom producer. Um, haven't done any live, of course, you know, now with the with COVID. Yeah, it's like um, everybody's kind of bedroom now. <laughs> yep, yep, <laughs> true. Everybody, we're all bedroom producers now. <laughs> yep, <laughs> facts. But um, definitely one thing I want to explore is live looping. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of still don't really know how it works. Like, it, it looks really cool. Um, but I haven't quite figured it out yet. I know there's kind of a way to do it with Ableton. There's like a different mm -hmm. mode to use. Um, right now, I'm I always work in arrangement mode. Mm -hmm. um, but I know there's like the I forget what it's called, but there's like that other mode. Oh, so you could have you doing like chain patterns and bouncing around in loops and like clips. Yep, yep, Cl clips. Yeah. I think it's called clips. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I don't I I what one thing I like to do is I have a lot of sequencers, like hardware mm -hmm. sequencers, and they kind of do what clips do, but they're not exactly, they, they, they kind of have these sequencers that run MIDI commands, and they, and I can get them to go like in, uh, in um, what do you call it? chain patterns. So I can go have a program that has like all these patterns that makes up a program, and that program is like a song. And then I can have that program in real time kick off a Moog, kick off a Roland, kick off whatever. And I can make them go in different directions. And I have like one sequencer that's like three lines of sequencing. So it can go three different lines at once of like multiple chain patterns. So then I can go and have it run a drum machine, run a bass line, run a pad, or run a sampler, or run whatever. What's cool about the one I have is it's 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 real time and it's super fast and it's like no load time. So I can have it switch around programs like in milliseconds. So I could have it go from one program to the next, to the next, to the next. And, and it doesn't feel like it's clipping or it doesn't go together. It can kind of work. It's just kind of a cool thing if you have a device that has that kind of, no, the latency is not bad that you can actually, don't have to have a like really long load time to get the next program. You, you can just bounce to the next thing. And it's been like a key of some of the hardware sequences I have, have this kind of fast ability to jump around which then when you go to do a live performance, you can kind of bounce around the clips and not have to worry about something not working <laughs> mm -hmm. or, or have a dead space because you can just bounce into it the next one. It's kind of like a DJ queuing up the next record, you know, on a Pioneer CDJ or something. It's like you can make sure you're syncing that up so it seamlessly goes to the next groove. Um, same, same kind of idea with the sequencers like that. So yeah, there's a lot of cool machines now that have the ability to move the clips in a very DJ pattern, much like a DJ. It gives you the more DJ type control you have, but then you have freedom to bounce around. I, I like the freedom to kind of not be stuck in the structure of the song. I can just kind of break it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that, pretty cool. Definitely something that, I want to explore. Yeah, I think a lot of the new pattern systems, they're all like all grid-based sequencers mm -hmm. from Akai, like MPC, there's like Akai Force, there's a bunch of different, even Roland has like the 707, MC 707, MC 101s. They're like pattern-based groove boxes. 
And their kind of claim to fame is they can bounce all these clips around. And you can have them as songs or you can just have them as launch clips bouncing all around, kicking things off. And and some of these grooving boxes can kick off modulars. They can kick off Ableton. They can kick off full, like, like sense. You can have them kicking off a hardware keyboard and a drum machine and a sampler and something else all at once. So then if you're like, want to be the ultimate one person control freak, <laughs> you're like, I want to be able to control everything. So now I'm like, I know I'm controlling when the beat's going to happen. I'm controlling when the vocals are going to kick in. I'm going to control everything and, and feel like you're not out of control. Um, so you become your own musical director. <laughs> and I think that's the goal. Like if you want to do a live show, there's a lot of cool gear that can let you do a show and you, look, you can look really good and sound good. Yeah, cool, cool. <laughs> Definitely is making me feel more comfortable about the idea of live performing. Yeah, I think look into groove boxes, like Electron's got them, Roland's got them, a lot of other companies have them. The groove boxes are like the core to like being a like a live performer that's not a DJ, but more experimental, right? And especially the ones that can link into modular. Because if you've got a groove box that then can kick off a modular synth, then you've got that kind of analog secret sauce in reserve. Plus you've got the modern kind of digital stuff under control. And I, I think it gives you a real quick kind of cross fade into both. Yeah, pretty cool. Definitely looking forward to that. Yeah, I think I think there's a, there's a lot of good stuff out there now so people can do something where it doesn't feel like, well, I'm just hitting play and then jumping up and down. <laughs> Yeah. Because <laughs> I think every musician, producer, you just don't want to be there. Okay, I'm just sitting here and going like, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. but I'm not actually playing, right? I yeah. think anybody that's like on stage, you want to feel, at least I do, I want to feel like I'm actually participating in the music that's happening. Yeah, interactive. I'm not just, yeah, I'm not just like letting it play and just kind of jumping up and down and not that that's not bad. I mean, it's okay, fine. You want you want to get the crowd going, but that's more like okay. You're more of a of a master of ceremonies. You're not mm -hmm. actually a musician because everything you did. Maybe you were a musician when you wrote it, but when you perform it, you're not being a musician. You're just kind of doing it. Then the, yeah. I I understand that people built it and they wrote it, but I in terms of, when I see somebody perform, I'm more of a guy. I want to see like a Hendrix. I want to see like. A Bootsy Collins. I mean, I want I want to see like a Steve. I want to see somebody actually do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Which I think today, though, which cool with your visuals. I was going to ask you. There's a lot of cool visual tools that when you go live, you can actually manipulate your visual in the same way you manipulate your sound. Mm, yep. I've heard of a, a program. I totally forget the name, but I have a, there's someone I know, he does uh, kind of like visuals uh, similar to that. It, it was something. Um, and I think you can connect it to Ableton and it kind of yeah. changes, you know, when the beat is going, it kind of, you know, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really synchronization cool with your MIDI Yep. signals like ends up being so everything is on the beat yep mm -hmm. and then the visuals can be manipulated by your rhythms and and then you can randomize it or you can actually control it 
some controllers do it with your hands waving in the air like a theremin. Um, mm -hmm. Some controllers do it with like foot pedals that you could go and kick off things uh, at different degrees by how much you pressure you put on the pedals. There's like a lot of cool things that you can do. Um, you can even kick them off with like drum pads. So you could have like a like a digital drum set and then be kicking off visual things instead of actually kicking off drum beats, you're kicking off visuals that kick off or light shows that kick off or lasers mm -hmm. that kick off. And so there's a lot of things for like the, um, I think with performance art, that I could see what you're doing to get into performance art if you connect a video to the music and into like interaction, actually changing it in real time. That would be kind of cool. Yeah, that is, I can definitely see this kind of expanding into that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just don't, I don't know how all of it works yet. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I, kind I of I know, learning. Know, it seems like you're the type of person I know you're going to find it. It's going to, it's going to find you. Or <laughs> mm -hmm. people who watch this are going to say, hey, I can help her. I, know, I have an idea. I like what you're doing, you know. That's the, one of the things I like about this show is that we've actually had some artists, you know, across the world, you know, some people, we talk to people like in Finland and Norway, and Japan, Hong Kong, and you get these artists, they, they find you, and then they say, hey, I got this idea. I like what you're doing. And then they go, they go and they go collaborate outside the program. Um, which is really cool, which is what kind of what we want to do with this with this show is we want to show people who's out here in the, in, in the space, you know, and then if people dig what you're doing and they think there's something they could link with you or, or you know, or you see something in some other artists we talk to, that's kind of, we want to create like a community um, of music and musicians and producers that feel like, okay, maybe I should contact Project P or maybe Kajka P should contact me. <laughs> you know, I think that's that that's how we grow as a community. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So it was one of the other things that we're actually working on is every artist we've ever interviewed, we are talking about doing an online festival where people could perform their work like in like a multi-day show we've interviewed almost over 50 people since 2018 and we've got about you know 10 of them already saying they would do it um so we're we're looking into like it's maybe not this year maybe next year or maybe a, a version of it might happen this year with the 10 acts we've talked to um but we are very interested in having like everybody we've ever talked to potentially come on and do it that's really exciting, actually. I have to figure it all out in the next year, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. You get, once you figure out what your rig is or how you do it, you know, you could just experiment doing like live, you know, Instagram, Facebook Live, YouTube Live shows and then figure it out mm -hmm. um, over time. Because that gives you like a way to try it out. No harm done. You know, so you yep. see if does it work? Do people like it? Do people dig it? Then you kind of figure it out. Um, yeah, but yeah, it was something we're open open uh, call for anybody that when they feel ready. If you feel ready, that'd be cool. And whenever you're ready, we'll probably do it multiple times. So at some point, you will be ready to should be should, uh, be on on the on that type of thing. Great. I totally agree. I would. Yeah. I do believe that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome. I actually, you know, we were talking about 
the the music scene now that you know with covid and mm -hmm. stuff it's been really interesting to see the creativity in these different artists like okay you know i can't do concerts i can't do live shows anymore how am i gonna you know entertain for my audience basically so to see kind of like virtual shows and all the different setups and things that they do that's been really cool and inspiring so yeah. yeah, people are getting real creative from home. I mean, I'm seeing more and more. I think they're actually like MTV-like shows, not on MTV, but shows on music channels mm -hmm. where people are performing from houses or from their roof or from their, from their garage. And the thing about that is you think about like punk music, like stuff like Nirvana or the Sex Pistols or The Clash, it kind of had that lo-fi thing and, and, and performing from a garage or a basement actually does have a lot of power in terms of the the field like it feels like honest it feels like okay i'm not trying to put on airs this is just like this is just the music you know this is just it we're not trying to be fancy or anything and that, to me a lot of fans like that you know they, they can get into that uh, whether it's unplugged or it's a full performance because you can actually you know figure out how to do it um i think that's what we're going to try to bring we're hoping that people will do like unplugged acapella stuff full band performances from a garage or a basement or even from a venue that lets them do it from the venue and then film it um yeah it's just the idea we think uh we got to give bands a way to get out there musicians a way to to get to fans we're trying to see if we can even get sponsors um to, to really push it so that's something that we are working on so you'll hear more about it great great so in terms of what you're working on in 2021, do you have another project that's on, on deck to be coming out soon? I do actually. I am going to start making beats for producers. Cool. Because um, <clears throat> a large part of my audience are other producers. And so, yeah. you know, I wanna, I wanna create like, um, you know, beat packs, know release stems I, I mean i always release stems whenever i have a release pretty much i think mm -hmm. i've had i've had five releases and then i had my ep um so right now i'm working on my ep stem pack um, but i definitely want to have like you know sample packs things like that but i want to focus on beats that are kind of already made or uh, yeah, i would offer custom beats as well and so right. that's yeah that's something yeah. i'm exploring for the remainder of the year well, I think that's a good way to get out there. I mean, it's kind of like what I do with this podcast is my um, kind of day job thing. <laughs> the ghost is my is my band. This is my show. Uh, this gets me out there. It gets me sponsors. It gets me like uh, influence marketing things. Um, so that's why we're free to everybody. But we also, you know, we get supporters that will support us like a Patreon. We get people that will come into our anchor and just give us money for talking to people for free because they're like well you know we like the idea that somebody's asking artists to come on and not charging them um and that's kind of like you know it's like npr you know every once in a while we got to get people to help us out <laughs> sure. but, but um yeah i think what's what's cool is like how artists today support themselves you know with the b packs or sample packs or loop packs um people putting together mixtape people collaborating you know i've i've actually done a couple of collaborations this year um 
guesting on other people's records and people working with me on their records and stuff. Um, I think like whatever we can do as artists to survive in this kind of age of, uh, of people who don't want to actually pay for music. <laughs> yep. Streaming yeah. services, things like that. Yeah. It's cool. Kind of gets us out there, but <clears throat> I think it's like, it's kind of hurtful in that, you know, there was a time where, you know, somebody had to go to a record store <clears throat> and buy your record or buy your CD or even on iTunes had to buy it, not stream it. Um, and the amount of profit that's even gone to the big guys is severely reduced for all musicians compared to what it was like 10, 20 years ago. Um, yeah. And so I think it, it's like we all are trying to find new ways like, OK, let's get our music into a video game. You know, let's get our music into some kind of Bitcoin thing. You know, let's 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 do something that's going to get the artist, you know, profit. And a lot of times, arts we don't really think about money because we're mostly focused on art, and it happens to make money. Then that then then it ends up going do, going that way. But I think a lot of us do it because we love music, and then then the other things happen because because we love it, and then these things happen because we get opportunities. But um. What what are your thoughts about that? <laughs> yeah, I think that we definitely, as musicians, as producers, we have to be a little more creative and think outside the box when it comes to, you know, bringing in income. Um, if that, you know, obviously, if that's you know what you want to do, um, I think definitely the way the the music world is now has changed. And you know the way that, that streaming services are set up, really, it's it's really difficult to to profit from that. Um, you get paid like fractions of a penny for one yeah. stream. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> it, it'll be hard to you know create a, a living off of that unless you're getting hundreds of thousands of streams, if not millions of streams. Yeah, and um, even the millions of streams aren't what they were. I mean, it's like I think some bands have figured out that if you do a vinyl and you did 10,000 copies of a vinyl that you produced and sell for $30 and you get the lion's share of that, you might make more than if you sold even a million copies on a streaming service. Yeah, yeah, true. Not, not only that, but you get to keep most of it. Yeah, and it's, it's a, lar a way larger cut. On a thirty dollar record, the band might be pulling in ten or fifteen dollars off that thirty dollar record. Mm -hmm. Where on a streaming service, they're getting point oh oh four of a penny. Mm. Yep. And so, a smaller volume, you can survive as an artist. Where a record label says, "Well, you got to sell five hundred thousand to a million, and as soon as you hit under a hundred thousand, they drop you from the label. But if you're an indie artist and you have that model, you could live with only having a hundred thousand fans and actually yeah. be profitable for 10 years or more and never have to go away. <laughs> yeah. So it's, I think what's, what's cool is that you end up being at a micro kind of business level where you can actually survive and thrive and have more ownership of your idea. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Which the labels probably don't want me to hear me talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> It's like you're you're not gonna get on the label now. <laughs> True. <laughs> True. But we you know we have to be like a little smarter about those things because I think people um, they kind of 
um, how do you say, I guess like basically like, there's more importance put on streaming services when really it's, it's not as profitable as many might think. And I think uh, being educated or having education about this is really helpful for artists. Um, because, yeah, I, mm -hmm. I think it's like the radio. I think the streaming service can get your fans to know who you are. And then if you, it's your kind of job as a, as a musician to kind of, okay, I got to keep these people engaged and get them to buy my T-shirt, to buy my button, my USB stick, um, to come to the show where I make more money if they come to a show. Um, and, and you know, you know, do things that will you know, do a twit, do a, like, uh, you know, uh, go on to TikTok and do a TikTok video. You could make more money on TikTok. You, you, right now, a lot of times, like your reels on Instagram and Facebook, things like that, actually pay a higher rate on royalties than than streaming services. So if you if you were like, I'm an artist, like on SoundCloud, right, repost, I, they actually publish me. And I get larger income coming in from Facebook, Instagram, TikTok than I do off of Apple or iTunes. Yeah, interesting. So so it kind of makes me say, well, I'm going to gear more content to those those places that's more visual. It's yeah. more that, that and so that content actually tends to is, is right now with the with the audience seems to be kicking more. The little, you know, 30 second, you know, the 60 second clips even on some of them can be like up to 10 minutes on Instagram. Um, those, those clips, those type of things seem to have a better impact. Yeah, definitely. I think the social media world is going more toward video. And yeah. I think, you know, video gets a lot more engagement than a still image does. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's one reason why, you know, I create videos to, you know, keep my audience engaged and they really enjoy them. Um, yeah. It's really interesting that, you know, how social media can put you in front of so many more people than just the streaming services alone. I think that using social media is, is an important part of building a brand as a musician mm -hmm. and, you know, connecting with your audience, finding your audience and things like that. Yeah. And then the other piece of it is like connecting to like being an influencer, right? So mm -hmm. if you do the whole package where you connect your, your audience to get them to go to these different TikTok or Reels, YouTube, and then you also get them to engage with influence marketing campaigns that get them into things like healthy living or green causes or political causes or different things. Then it can translate into different types of actions. You know, there's a different artist, okay, their goal is political action or their goal is environmental this or their goal is that. And so if you, you can go and then make your mark the way you want to, you know, and still be, you know, it's music, but it's actually music and, and your life has music and other things in it. And you kind of mold it to go in that way. Yeah, true. So I think it's, I, I think it's really cool that we were able to have you on the program again and, uh, we are both in the same neck of the woods. I'm in New Hampshire. You're in Boston. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so it's uh, it's cool to talk to you. It's, uh, I'm always like to keep up with all the artists I've talked to in the past. And it was awesome to, to see you and actually talk to you and see your work. And I think everybody could hear it. 
And we do have the link up permanently here and it will be permanently on the Twitch, Facebook and YouTube channels. And like I said, we're gonna get onto Spotify and Apple and like nine other audio platforms as well within an hour. Great, I'll definitely be sharing these clips on my social media too, as well as my YouTube channel. So yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, this is great, this is fun. <laughs> well, I think it's cool, it's a different way of doing it. We're getting the hang of it. We had some missteps at the beginning, but we're getting better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we'll, yeah, we'll, sure. At the beginning of our, our podcast, it's like we didn't have our mics right, or we didn't, you know, you, you learn when you get into a new world how, how things are going to go. Um, but yeah, I think we did good tonight, and we thank you for being on the show. Have a, have a great night. Thank you, you too. Thanks again.